So the subject tonight, or the question tonight, is how can we, or can we know we're saved? Assurance of salvation. And I'm going to start out with a caveat that a lot of what I'm going to share with you tonight comes from a small book by R.C. Sproul called Can We Know We're Saved? And uh, I make no apologies for that, uh, but I do want to make that clear in case you've read it or in case you want to read it, you might want to read it. So I'm indebted to uh, Dr. Sproul. I don't have a single text. I have a number of texts tonight, and we will be seeing those up on the screen later on as we go along. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word tonight, we, we ask your spirit to work in our hearts and to give us clarity on the things that we will discuss and think about this particular matter of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation is such a crucial thing. And I am aware that there are a number of us here tonight who don't know for sure where we stand with you. Lord, I believe it's your will for us to know with clarity exactly where we stand with you. So give us grace to understand. Give us wisdom as we think about these things and give me uh, clarity uh, in speech to communicate your truth accurately. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little personal history here. Uh, as I was a kid growing up in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, early 60s uh, in the USA uh, and was attending church regularly, it seemed that most of the sermons that I heard all revolved around kind of a similar theme of the coming, second coming of Christ, the judgment to come, of the great white throne and the horrific possibility that any of us apart from Christ could end up in hell. Uh, and I, at an early age, began to understand that I needed Christ in order to be saved. There was no hope for me apart from Him. Our church, uh, or various churches that we attended over the years, had altar calls, which were opportunities uh, for us, and at a probably about six years of age, I made my way down to the front to do whatever it was I was supposed to do in order to escape from this horrific end that was coming upon the world and to, uh, to flee from the wrath to come. There was, uh, in my case, at least little personal follow-up after this experience, and so after a while... Uh, I was not sure really where I stood with God. I began to wonder. And uh, so I did what any frightened uh, nine-year-old would do at camp one night with the uh, assistance of my uh, camp, camp counselor. And with his guidance, I prayed to God again to save me. 
Uh, this time, though, I memorized a verse, John 1.12, which says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power or he gave the right to become the children of God. Uh, again, there was little personal instruction for me uh, to guide me uh, as to what I was supposed to expect at this point. And so pretty soon I was again filled with doubts about where I stood with God. Um, as I grew into adolescence, uh, if you've been through that, you know what, that, uh, what a minefield that is. And I was troubled uh, by my growing sin that seemed to overwhelm me. I remember uh, one incident in which I tried to witness to a classmate and he just broke up in a thousand pieces laughing at me. And I said, I am never going to let that happen to me again. Eventually, uh, as I grew older, I gave up any efforts uh, to be obedient to God unless I was within sight of my parents or my pastor or Sunday school teacher or someone. My life looked like that of any other pagan kid in my school. I grew more hardened to sin in my life, and at the same time, coinciding with that, I became skeptical of the people in my church. I began to doubt that anyone anyone really was living the Christian life. If we really got down to be honest about it, I felt like I had discovered that the church, as they say, is full of hypocrites. I had no idea how right that was, but the point was that these hypocrites gave me an ironclad excuse for disregarding the godly instruction of my parents and the nagging guilt in my soul. Now the worst times were those dark nights in the wee hours of the morning when I'd awaken before dawn and have the overwhelming sensation that Jesus had returned and I had been left behind. And I would quietly get out of my bed, tiptoe to my parents' bedroom to see if they were still there. And every time, they were, and I was safe for another night. But this was an awful way to live, really. It was horrendous. So it became a shock to me, given this background of my thinking about hypocrites in the church, it, became a shock. it was a shock to me when I got to college and began to meet Christians on the campus. And they were bold, and they were committed to Christ, and they were unafraid to tell others about the Lord. And for over a year, I watched them and reluctantly went to their Bible studies from time to time. And you need to know that there were, there were two things that held me back from following Christ openly uh, at that point in my life. One of them was I had plans for my own life and I didn't want God to interrupt them. Uh, and the second one was I refused to identify myself with Christ and risk the ridicule that I had experienced earlier. Then one fall afternoon, when one of those scary Christians uh, sat down with me in a snack bar on campus and looked, at, looked me in the eye, and he said to me, John, 
you will never have joy and peace in your life until Christ is in the center of it. Uh, I was I was shocked and stunned. It seemed like he had read my mind because that was really exactly what was going on. I was making great progress towards my goals and plans in my life, but and everything was on track. But I was completely miserable. I was not experiencing the joy and happiness that I had dreamed of. And I had enough perception about it to see that nothing was really going to change. Uh, a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, it would all be just the same, meaningless and empty. As the conversation progressed with this scary Christian guy uh, in that afternoon, a little bit later he said, another, made another statement at me, and he said, I say at me because it felt like he was shooting at me. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm here on this campus to reach men for Christ. And I think you should be doing the same thing. Bam! The other shoe dropped. So the two things that I was struggling with, he hit exactly right center, dead on. As I walked back to my dorm that day, I prayed to God something like this. God, I can't live the Christian life, but I know without a doubt I am bound for hell the way I am right now. And if you will take over my life, I am willing for you to do that. Please help me. That day at age 19, I was converted. I gained assurance. I gained salvation. Um, and God in His mercy had sent a man to me with deep insight into my guilt and deep conviction of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my life began to change so dramatically that a few weeks or months later, my agnostic roommate sat looking at me in our dorm room and made this statement. He said, I have never seen anyone change like this. And then he broke up in uh, tears and confessed how guilty he felt about the way he treated people with his obnoxious mouth. I had professed faith in Christ several times, but merely praying a prayer or raising my hand or going forward uh, was not the same as actually repenting of my sin and putting my faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That day, God also, along with salvation, gave me assurance of salvation not because I was suddenly sinless, but because I sensed that the Holy Spirit had done something in me that was not my own doing, that was something God did. I now understand uh, with my uh, more intelligent mind, uh, informed mind, that what happened to me that day was the new birth or regeneration. God took a dead, spiritually dead person and by His Spirit gave life to me. 
so that I could believe and truly believe. Not everyone that who has been saved has immediate assurance of salvation. I'm trying to distinguish here between the, the fact of having salvation and being assured that you have salvation. You see the difference? These are two different things. We'll talk about this as we go forward here in a few minutes. Uh, there is a difference, and we, we need to come back to that. One of the uh, passages that I want us to look at tonight is Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. And this is certainly a passage that will get your attention. As you read through that wonderful Sermon on the Mount that so many people like to cite and talk about how wonderful the Sermon on the Mount is when they like to talk about Jesus, those who may not believe in Him otherwise, uh, they probably skip this passage. Jesus says this in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, just pause a moment. If you met someone that like this person who's in this uh, passage, if you met someone who prophesied in Christ's name, and cast out demons in Christ's name, and did many mighty works in His name, what would you think about that person? I dare say that most of us would say, I want to find out more about Him. I would like to trail around with Him and, and see what He does. I would, I'd like to carry His bags, uh, get on trips with Him, whatever. I'd like to see how that works. And yet, when Jesus describes that day that he refers to here, that final day, when these people expected to enter the kingdom of heaven and they do not get in, they are absolutely mortified. They cannot understand what went wrong. They did not do the will of the Father in heaven. What was wrong with these people? Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these people could not figure out why were they left out like this. They thought that they were totally qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. They did everything in the name of the Lord. Hmm. They did great things. Their fault was they did not know Christ. And He did not know them. They were deluded. Do you think it is a small thing to have assurance of salvation? Do you think it's just eh, extra benefit but nothing to worry about? I don't think so. It is possible to think you are saved and not be. And I don't know about you. I'm pretty sure I do know about you too. 
that I do not want to get to that day and find out that I was completely mistaken. Do you? No. So let us consider these two questions uh, in the next few minutes. Should we expect to have assurance of salvation? And how may we gain assurance of salvation? First of all, should we expect to have assurance of salvation? Now, the folks that we met in Matthew chapter 7 just a moment ago were misled about their salvation. We do not want to be confused about this matter. When Jesus appeared and began his public ministry in Galilee, he came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When he preached, he expected the people to hear him and he expected them to heed his message and re respond with urgency. So should we expect to have assurance of salvation? I believe the answer is yes, and there, here is why. The Bible commands us to seek to have assurance of salvation. There are probably a, a number of verses, but two that I would like to mention for us to think about this evening. Why, we might, why the Bible commands us, uh, the fact that the Bible commands us to know for sure that we have salvation. Uh, let's look at Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. Uh, though those who received this letter written to the Hebrews did not, uh, were going through hard times. They were under, under stress. They were being pressured. They were wavering somewhat. And the, the letter is meant to strengthen them in their faith. And so the writer to the Hebrews says this, and we desire each one of you to show this same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We desire that each one of you show this same earnestness so that you have full assurance of hope until the end. I'm thinking of a, an illustration of this. If you are off in the tra mountain trails here in the Blue Ridge, beautiful, wonderful places to hike that we love, and you're hiking on a trail, and you're not... It's a tough trail. It's a rocky trail. It's a steep trail. And you're trying to get to a destination. Now, it enters your mind that maybe you're on the wrong trail. How easy is it to keep going on a difficult trail when it might be the wrong trail? It's hard, isn't it? And so what the writer to the Hebrews is telling them is, I want you to know, I want each of you to know that you have full assurance that you are on the right trail, and it may be a hard trail, and it may be a long trail, and you will need to endure. Don't get sluggish along the way but through faith and patience persevere to the end and inherit the promises that God has given to His people. And so it stands to reason that God wants us to be on the right path and to know that we're on the right path. 
In 2 Peter 1, we read these words. Uh, The the whole context would be worth spending the evening on, but let me just pick up this part of the passage. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, the words calling and election are words that apply to God's working. This is, this, these are things that God does. God calls. God elects. And we are recipients of that. That day back in fall of whatever year, I knew that I was called and elected by God, but I had nothing to do with it. It was His doing. I had to respond to that gospel presentation that I received. But then I discovered that He had called and He had elected. These were things that He did, not based on any worthiness in me, not based on my abilities or my uh, assets of any kind. And so there has to be a sense in which we want to diligently know that God has called us and He has elected us. And it became clear to me when I realized I couldn't do this myself. Whatever was going on inside of me had to be God. Now, this is one of the things that confirms our calling and election is that there is evidence that the Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to salvation. Not to perfection, at least not immediately, but there is an evident change. Something goes, something is different when we come to Him and when we are born again. So how can we gain assurance of salvation? It may be obvious, but we probably need to say this, that before we can have assurance of salvation, we have to have salvation. There are four kinds of people in the world when it comes to assurance of salvation. Uh, These four categories apply to every person in some way. You may not recognize which category you are in, but you are in one of these four categories. First group is those who are saved and know it. These are people who have true assurance. Uh, So the reality of their spiritual condition coincides with what they believe about their standing with God, their understanding of their condition. We can say that they are assured This is what I lacked up until I came to truly know Christ. And we might say that no one should be assured if they don't truly know Christ. That would be false assurance. We'll get to that in a minute. The second group that we can consider is those who are not saved and know it. Those who are not saved and realize they are not saved. After I came to Christ, uh, 
Strangely enough, I began telling my friends, and I did risk all that ridicule. Uh, I met up with my best friend from high school, whom I hadn't seen for several years. We sat and talked about college and life and so forth. And then I told him that I was a Christian. And I asked him about his spiritual state. He shook his head very sadly and said, John, I'm going to hell unless I change my ways. That was his exact words. That was such an awful moment for both of us. Years later, I was able to present the gospel to him, and now he trusts in Christ as his Savior. But I would describe people who are not saved and know it as hopeless. Well, not really hopeless, because if they come to Christ, they will have hope. But as they stand, they are hopeless. And they are on the bad, on the road to judgment and condemnation. So these are the people that are not saved and they know it. The third group are those who are not saved and don't know it. Hmm. These are people and... It's a large group, I, I believe, from my experience. There are people who will tell you that they are sure that they are going to heaven, but if you ask them how they know, they will begin to tell you that it's because they have been good, they ate their veggies, they never hurt anyone, and uh, so forth. They trust in their works. Apparently, they've never heard or they don't believe uh, that they are that we are saved as Paul writes to Titus in three four to seven, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Paul wrote this Titus three four to seven. Um, not uh, I'm sorry, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works of righteousness done by us, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Typically, this group of people holds to one of the following misconceptions. One is universalism. Oh, everybody's going to make it. All roads lead to heaven. We'll all get there. Nobody's going to go to hell. There's no such thing as hell. No judgment. Um, or they believe in works righteousness. That is, I can earn my way uh, to, uh, to heaven. Or something that's called sacerdotalism, which is basically trusting in the church. If I get baptized, if I go to church every once in a while, if I do the things I'm supposed to do, it's another form of works righteousness. I would call these people the deluded. Uh, they are very like those in Matthew 7 who were stunned to learn that they could not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, another way of looking at it is you could say that they don't take their sin seriously or they take their good works too seriously. 
These are the people who are not saved, but don't know it. And finally, there are those who are saved and don't know it. Now, you might wonder whether or not there's possible for anybody to be saved and not know that they're saved. But I suggest that uh, there are some in that category because these are the kind of people who they hear an amazing testimony of God saving uh, a drug lord or a Hollywood celebrity who was deep in all kinds of sin. And they hear these amazing testimonies of how God transformed some terrible person or some very wealthy person and they don't identify with that. They, they maybe came to Christ when they were a little child. They don't even remember that. They, they don't remember the details of that. They, they know it happened, but they don't know exactly when it happened. And they don't have any wild stories to tell. They, don't, they never, never had any, uh, you know, chases with the police. They never had, you know, they never had a, a shootout anywhere. They never tried to bomb the, the World Trade Center or anything. And they think, you know, I don't have a very interesting story. My, my testimony is just so boring. And this is the kind of person that needs to be reminded that we're not saved by a conversion experience. We are saved by conversion, by being converted, but not by an experience, a particular kind of experience. The kind of, this kind of person needs instruction in the gospel. But most likely is a true believer who needs to be encouraged and reassured that the promises of God hold true. And some of you have that kind of testimony. It's a good thing. I wish we all had that kind of testimony where we just came to Christ at the earliest age and we never really went deep in the dark side of things. So you might be in one of these four categories. You are in one of these four categories. It's important to know which one. So as I said before, before we can have an assurance of salvation, we must have salvation. So how do we how are we saved? What is the process? We've seen already that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But let's think about faith for a moment. What is saving faith actually? It's been helpful for me to understand that saving faith has three parts to it. So as for you kids that... You know, y'all came up and went to your Sunday school class this morning. This is important for you to recognize, okay? So pay attention to this. Saving faith includes three things. Number one, knowledge. It is important to know the facts about the gospel. These facts could be summarized very briefly in these few phrases. God is holy. We are sinful. Jesus saves all who come to Him in faith and repentance. So believe and be saved. Now that's what you, you need to know that. You need to know more than that. And we could be more nuanced, but this is the basics pretty much. And hopefully everybody 
past, uh, you know, K5 is uh, getting this pretty well cleared up in their minds, understanding these basic truths, knowing these truths. And besides knowing these truths, uh, because you can know these and not agree with them, uh, its second thing is not just knowledge, but assent or agreement. Do I agree to these truths that we've just mentioned? Uh, in an illustration of this, uh, in our missionary work on campuses in Argentina, we used to use surveys on the campus to introduce ourselves to students and engage with them. And one of the questions we would ask is, who do you think Jesus Christ is, and not uh, infrequently, uh, people would say the Son of God, because they had a church background. They knew the answers to these questions, but they didn't necessarily agree with it, and they probably didn't trust in him. So we must have the knowledge of the gospel. We must agree with it. But even there, there is another step that makes saving makes for saving faith. Um, so, and that is to actually trust in Him. So you could be a person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross to save His people from their sin. You could agree to that truth. But if you do not rest in Him, trust in Him, entrust yourself to Him, you have not reached what we could call saving faith and what is called saving faith. You know, people get to that third point and they get hung up because pretty oftentimes they think to themselves, you know, I don't think I'm really that bad. My sin really isn't all that bad. Do I really need a Savior? I don't think so, but thanks anyway. Or they might think that their sin is so bad that even Jesus can't save them. They're hopeless, uh, and they stay hopeless. They feel like they've crossed over to the land of no return. So let me ask you this all of you, but especially you, the kids. Do you know the gospel message? Do you know the things I've just said? Do you? Good. I hope so. I hope you know the facts of the gospel. Do you believe these facts? Do you think they are true? Is it true that there's a holy God in heaven before whom we will stand someday? That there is a judgment Actually, if there weren't, nothing in life would make any sense. But do you actually trust in Christ yourself to save you from your sins? Do you trust in Him when you look at yourself and you feel like you've really blown it? Um, it scares you how bad you might be sometimes. Have you... Put your trust in Him. Do you rest in Him and know that He's going to see you through and that He forgives sinners when they confess uh, their sins to Him?
I hope you do. But saving faith is all three of these. And don't get stuck on just knowing a lot or even agreeing with it and not trusting in Him. If the Holy Spirit has given you uh, enough trust, enough life to trust in Christ, then He has begun a work in you which He will complete. Uh, in Dr. Sproul's little book, Can I, know, uh, Can I Be Sure I'm Saved? He said that he used to ask people who he was counseling if they loved Jesus. And typically people would say, not as much as I should. And then he would say, no one loves Jesus as much as they should or as much as he deserves. But do you have any affection for the Lord, for Jesus, the Jesus we find in the Bible? And if they said yes, he would say, only the Holy Spirit can give you true affection for the Lord Jesus. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So if the Holy Spirit has begun a work in you, you can be sure that He will work in you and bring it to completion as Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians 1.6, at the day of Jesus Christ, I believe or I am, I am convinced that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Will you have trials along the way? Yes. Will your faith be tested? Yes. Will you struggle at times? Yes. Will God forsake you? No. He will never forsake the work of His hands. So tonight I ask you to consider which of these four people are you? Are you the assured? The hopeless? The deluded? Or the misinformed? Oh, I hope that everyone here can say, I am amongst those who are truly assured. On that fall afternoon, many years ago, I entrusted my soul to my Savior and He did save me. I know, because the Spirit blew. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that You would take what's been said that is worthy of you and apply it to our hearts and to our minds clearly. Lord, grant to us, us who are members or attendees of this church, who love this congregation, uh, uh, grant to us clarity, Lord, about our faith in you. Lord, I pray for especially the youth here who go through and will go through trials designed and allowed and sent by You for their growth, for their perfecting in You, for their sanctification. And I pray that they will cling to You and that You will hold them fast. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.